about the mic, so I won't tell you too much. We uh, are concluding our security seminar this afternoon, or our, our symposium this afternoon, with a security seminar, a nice overlap. We've done this several years now. Uh, and I'm particularly pleased to welcome and introduce our speaker, uh, our closing speaker for this, uh, someone I've known for several years uh, who has uh, developed a, an amazingly uh, good reputation in the industry, unless perhaps you're at Microsoft, in which case. And I asked Dan to uh, come talk here at the symposium for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I have never, in, in at least a dozen instances, uh, attended a talk that Dan has given where I have not come away thinking that it was really insightful and he has come up with something that I had never thought of before. And uh, in a field where you see the same things over and over again, uh, that is incredibly refreshing. Uh, he thinks very deeply and in ways that many of us do not about the field. Uh, the second uh, reason that I was hoping that Dan would appear and, and talk is he's pretty good at synthesizing things. And so having him sit through some of the session and be able to uh, uh, do a closing talk that tries to incorporate all of that uh, would be wonderful um, uh, and, and a good close to the session. Um, and uh, um, <coughs> third, uh, it's been a while since I've seen him, so I figured this would be a good excuse. That's fine. So with, without much uh, uh, further ado here, I would like to uh, introduce uh, uh, to you uh, Dr. Dan Gear, uh, the most famous pair of sideburns in information security. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he will give a, a provocative talk on a quant uh, look at information security. So, Thank you. Thank you. Um, he has, of course, revealed that I'm not actually talking about the future. I'm actually a throwback, but that's, you know, besides, <laughs> the, uh, besides the point. What I, um, in a sense, and, and the bit about the word quant earlier, I am a numbers guy. Um, I actually have a degree in, in biostatistics, and I'm the son of an accountant. Um, so, of course, that meant I spent my youth as, uh, the slave labor of my youth was uh, reconciling adding machine tapes, which, of course, no one does anymore. But um, I've been around numbers for a long time. I'm not a natural mathematician, though. Uh, let me be clear about that. I do think to be, say, a cryptographer, for example, you do have to, to a degree, be wired right. And for what it's worth, I'm not wired right for that, or to be Michael Jordan either, for that matter. But, the, uh, but I've, I've tried to be an educated consumer of numbers. Um, amongst other things, I like them for the nature of truth that they can provide. Not always, of course. Uh, you can, of course, lie with statistics. And if you'd like, I will tell you how. And if you've never bought the little book, How to Lie with Statistics, I highly recommend it. It is just wonderful. Um, but you can, you can do that. Fred Mosteller, who was the chairman of the department where I got my degree, uh, famously said that, uh, that I'm sorry, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, that's not for me. Uh, famously said that, uh, famously said that uh, you can lie with statistics, but it's easier without them. And I think he's right about that as well. So this is a little bit of numbers trying to guess where the numbers take us. So with that, let me um, ask it to start. I'm going to talk about trend analysis to a degree. And the question is, why would you look at trends? Well, if you're trying to predict the future, um, I mean, there is an obvious question. What else do you have? I mean, you can invent it in whole, but this is not science fiction I'm trying to do. It's trying to predict the future a little bit. Um, speaking as a statistician, uh, and of course, if anyone here is a statistician, you realize I am bending the truth a little bit, but I hope you'll forgive me, and it's all in a good cause, is that if you're measuring something and your measurement is not really pathologic, that even if it has regular error of some sort, that the regular error, in a sense, is self-correcting if you look at just the trends, it turns out, and don't believe necessarily the numbers. So to take a trivial example, which I mentioned earlier today, the CSI-FBI study, which comes out every year, um, I don't honestly believe the numbers in that. But to a degree, I'm willing to believe the shape of the curve that it turns out. And to, for our purposes here, I think the shape of the curve is often good enough. And it's good enough in that I don't think we can do um, real measurement of security a lot 
I don't think it's actually possible to do real measurement of security because, amongst other things, just as was said in the, in the panel that preceded this, we don't have the language for that. We don't have the terminology for that. It's a bit of a difficulty. You know, if I say, what's a vulnerability, we will get more than one answer in the room. But if, on the other hand, I say, I'm measuring vulnerabilities in at least a stable fashion, and the shape of that curve looks like the following, perhaps we can make decisions about what should we do around vulnerabilities based on the shape of that curve that doesn't strictly depend and therefore allows us to sidestep that we don't have a strong definition, we don't have a strong mechanism of measuring it where we get n-digit accuracy and so forth. Um, to repeat one other thing and then I'll stop uh, repeating things, I was once in a, and, and now let me say to you that I love a technically hostile audience. So if you are of that sort, um, um, let's, let's go to it. I, I enjoy that. Um, but I was once in front of a technically hostile audience that was particularly relevant to this topic. And it was uh, the then uh, Chief Information Security Officer for uh, uh, Citicorp in New York. This was after Steve Katz, if you know who I'm speaking of. Uh, this is Steve Russell. And he was an unwilling internal promotion. He'd been in management audit and he didn't want the job, but somebody had to do it and so forth. And in a room of about 30 people with myself and him roughly having a dialogue with uh, witnesses, uh, he said, are you security people so stupid that you can't tell me how secure am I? Am I better off than, this time, than I was this time last year? Uh, am I spending the right amount of money? How do I compare to my peers? What risk transfer options do I have? And of course, we are that stupid. We were then. We are now. Um, and uh, of course, I said that. But his point was well taken. And his point is the following which is that in any other part of the banking enterprise with which he is familiar, he could answer the equivalent questions, equity trading, bond portfolios, derivative pricing, you name it. He could answer those kinds of questions to three, four, five digit accuracy. He could have hedges. He could have uh, some sense of what his risk exposure was. There is a number that is calculated at every big bank every day, the value at risk number. Uh, there's whole books on this whole books on how to calculate one number, which I know sounds surprising, but it really does exist. Um, and the idea is that at the end, that this number is a statement about, it's just a confidence interval for those of you who know a little statistics, it's a confidence interval, typically a 99% confidence interval on today, whatever happens, we have a 1% chance that we'll lose more than X dollars. 1% chance that we'll lose more than X dollars. And the point of this is that from a risk management point of view on the financial side of the house, you have a target for that. If it is too high, then you do not have, strictly speaking, sufficient reserves and the, and the existence of the bank is thereby threatened. If it is too low, you're not taking enough risk and you're leaving money on the table. So there's a target range in between and that number is calculated every day. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated simulation process usually. Uh, the last time I looked at one of these, it was 4,000 board level Linux machines running all night. The simulations are large. Uh, they are very chained together. If Mexico defaults on its bonds, what happens to the price of gas that you get from the state utility, so forth and so forth. It's a very uh, complicated uh, simulation and every bank does their own. Now, where I had this moment of truth that brings me to what I'm talking about today, where I had this moment of truth was in one of the banks where I got to sit in the back of the room in an audience actually roughly this size in which someone described at sort of all day length how they did the value at risk calculation. This was an annual review of that particular process. And the room is full of people who contribute various parts to it. You know, the home mortgage equity collateralization crowd over here and what have you, right? At the end of the day, the person who's standing where I am leans across the lectern and he says, now, you may ask yourself why this all works. The reason is that there is zero ambiguity about which one of you holds what risk. I'm in the back of the room, the light goes on. In my field, in this field, there's nothing but ambiguity about who holds what risk. And that is the big distinction. That is why we are not where finance is. We may, maybe you don't want to be where finance is, but I view it as a model for what can be done with risk management in a world of uncertainty. And if you've been watching lately, Goldman is beating everybody else's pants off these days in terms of the money. They're making 27% on their, on their capital per annum. Uh, I assure you that you are probably not. Uh, I certainly am not. How are they doing that? And the answer is they believe that they can do the risk management calculation better, that they can go closer to the edge, thereby take risks that other people won't take where the real return is, and not get burned. And they believe it is purely due to their ability to do this risk management, and that's spreading actually into the way they do IT risk management, which is not what this talk is about, but it's spreading into that. 
For example, they are the ones who say that from this point forward, they're spending no more money on preventing bad things from happening. They're spending all their money on making fast recovery from bad things as near instantaneous as possible. If you've done the availability calculus, you know that availability is time between failures divided by time between failures plus time to repair. You get one, 100% availability, if either it never fails or recovery is instantaneous. You get one either way, and they've decided to go the other way. That's a risk management decision, I assure you, because they've looked at it exactly like that. Now, trend analysis is what drives those kinds of decisions. Because lots of times you can't be sure that, say, a simulation is telling the truth. But if you calculate in a way where you understand how the calculation goes and you have enough consistency that day to day there is, we at least did it the same way as we did yesterday. So if our error was whatever it was yesterday, we have the same error today, so the delta is meaningful, you actually get somewhere. I guess I've beaten that into the ground, but that's what I'm about to do is take that and then beat some other sticks into the ground. The first, it is the first step in thinking about the future. Now, I will, I will point out something. If you think about the future, if you make early decisions, you of course have much greater options about what you can do. The things you can do if you decide to act early are much broader. Of course, that also means that your confusion about which one to take is much broader. And your ability to justify it to someone who is a deep skeptic or an opponent is worse. On the other hand, if you wait till later, where it's obvious what to do, you don't have as many options. So in a sense, doing this kind of prediction activity is a way of thinking about, am I going to trade one kind of risk, if you want to think of it that way, for another kind of risk? And the trade I'm making is between, I've got a million possibilities, ain't that wonderful, but I can't tell them apart, versus there's only one thing left to do and we're hosed. You know, and it's in between that you want to live. You want to live between those two. And so that's why I'm going to try to do here a little bit. And I'm not actually going to try to predict the 40-year future or something. Um, and I realize that if you do that, it's like being a cosmologist. Nobody can argue with you because there's no way to argue with you, right? I'm actually going to do it up a little closer, so maybe you'll argue with me because that's what I like to do. So um, here we go. Uh, this is William Gibson, um, the science fiction uh, writer, writing, and of all things, The Economist. The future is already here. It's unevenly distributed. Uh, that is, in fact, the case. It's always already here. Uh, just some have it more than others. The idea that he would be writing this, and of all things, The Economist, is, is amazing, but there you go. So here we go. What kind of data is available? You know, what can we look at? What, what is typically something that we can, that we can measure? And, the, and really, there's primarily, when you're trying to predict the future, there's primarily two sources. One is you can get lots of event reports and try to do something with a stream of event reports, which is really what I'm going to mostly talk about here. And the other is uh, you can do survey research. By the way, um, I was asked earlier, was I willing to give these slides over? And, of course, I'm always willing to give these slides over. So for what it's worth, somebody somehow will make these available. And they do have margin notes, just for what it's worth. Um, you can do survey research. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to do survey research. It's actually harder than it sounds like. Because amongst other things, and this is back to questions of ontology, for example, you say, you know, you ask a question, and, the, and really then what happens is, is the answer you got to the question you thought you were asking or to something else. A uh, typical example from the medical world, you ask if someone has pain, and the people who have more pain are more likely to say yes and quicker than the people who don't, and the people who are stoics won't answer at all. And pretty soon, if you're really serious about this, you have to say, now, what was I asking? And, you know, what were the results here? How do I look at this? Uh, you ask, uh, there's, there's lots of problems in doing survey research. And, of course, the worst ones are ones where you say, does anybody have an opinion about this? Because all you get are extremes. You know, uh, and, and if it isn't obvious... Every news agency has failed to learn that lesson uh, really well. They ask people in the street, do you have an opinion about this? And the don't bother me's dominate, and yet those are the, that's the centroid of you know, public opinion is the don't bother me, I'm late for work. You know? um, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second, too. So let's look at a few of these things. There's lots of categories of risk and, and information security problems that we might talk about. Earlier today, there was some discussion about, uh, you know, was the threat of unauthorized use greater than the threat of, you know, break-ins and what have you. Well, let me just take the CSI-FBI study, which I like to make fun of to a degree, but not really. This is, in the last year, have you had an episode in your firm of unauthorized use? 
Now, mind you, this is a binary decision, so it isn't corrected for I have one employee, I have 1,000 employees, I have 1 million employees. It isn't corrected for that. It's, it's firm-wide. So if you were doing analysis on this, you'd have to remember some things like that. This is have you had one in the last year? Yes, no, don't know. Now, by the way, if you're ever doing survey research, always say yes, no, don't know, don't understand, skip it. Uh, and, and then you've got an answer for everybody, as opposed to forcing people to answer something or just not write it. Or, yeah, I'll skip it, none of the above. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough, whoever said that. Oh, yeah, you do this all the time, right. Um, uh, uh, the voice of semantic in the audience. Um, now, this is, of course, it's a little horrifying to imagine that this percentage of people would say, don't know, but nevertheless, this is the picture. Now, you might say, does that tell me anything? Well, let's play with it just a little bit. This is the optimistic version. If you don't know whether you've had an attack, you haven't had one. You add the no and the unknowns together. That's, that's one, if you will, bracket in one direction. The other bracket in the other direction is, of course, if you don't know, you probably have. That, you know, do I believe the yeses or do I believe the noes? Um, this is one way to look at it. And that, that's perfectly fine because it allows me to say, you know, I might think about this. If I have an optimistic view or a pessimistic view, what, what band is bracketed by this information? And that's what you see up here. I don't read slides to people, but you can see, you know, we could, if we pick, if we're pessimistic, um, it's worse at the outset, but we do better at the end and vice versa. As you all know, the, the student who's getting all A's can never get the most improved student award. It's the same sort of thing here. You know, if, you're, if, you, if you take a pessimistic view, you can often show better improvement. Uh, needless to say, uh, uh, I'll pick on the federal government here, agencies that have gotten bad FISMA scores like to show that they've made improvement. Actually, having a bad FISMA score at the outset is not a terrible thing because it gives you so much more room for regular improvement year over year. Uh, Gene's nodding his head. Uh, yes, this, uh, uh, this is exactly the case. This is one way to look at this. So when you're playing around with trends, this is one thing you might do. Now, this is the CSI FBI study, and all I would say is they claim that unauthorized use is falling very slowly. I think that's a problem, honestly, of self-selection in the survey. One of the things, if you read their comments that go with this, uh, and, of course, interpretation of data is always harder than collection, and collection's hard enough. But one of the things they say is that they've been getting fewer and fewer respondents. Now, that could easily be people who are not responding did have an episode and won't tell. Or people who used to respond and didn't mind saying yes or no now mind, and so the only time they would say no is when it's no, and the only time they say yes is when you don't get an answer back. So, you know, it's a little hard to say what this is, but just for what it's worth, all self-selecting surveys are suspect. So when you read data that is a self-selecting survey, be suspect. But at the, at the least, these folks have collected the same data year after year. They may quit one of these days. And I'll come to that question about quitting uh, in a moment. Incidents. I'm going to keep using their data for a second, and we'll, come, we'll use other people's data in a moment. This is uh, how many people had a, had a security incident where the source was inside versus outside. I found it remarkable that they were getting such collinearity of these numbers. I found that remarkable. N is 453 here, which is not particularly large when you consider the number of people who could be answering the survey. So it's probably an unstable number, but however it is they're collecting it, they're sort of collinear, they're sort of flat. I find that surprising, but let's accept it for what it is for the moment. Uh, that's what it is. Now this is, uh, this is the counts of the number of instances. Now you'll notice, I'm sorry, I want to back up one, you'll notice uh, that, that this is the percentage of firms that have one, and this is how many they have had and they're still sort of aligned, but now, again, remarkably, it looks like there's less problem inside. My intuition, honestly, by the way, goes the other way. My intuition is the other direction. So I'm not sure what this says, but if I'm, if I'm looking in an honest sense for sources, this is a source. Um, does the term open source intelligence mean anything? It means looking at, at sources of information that are available to everybody. And in, in such situations, often what you do, since you don't know a lot about how they were collected precisely, is you try to combine multiple sources, or you try to look at the range of multiple sources, what uh, some statisticians would call meta-analysis. You're trying to say, I've got 35 studies of whether red dye number two causes problems uh, with kidney sarcoma years later, you know, and you try to combine them together. One might do the same thing here. Um, I'm not going to belabor that. Amongst the FBI uh, respondents, which I probably should be able to spell, uh, the attack rate for insiders and outsiders uh, seems to be falling. Now, this is where they say the number of respondents willing to report their losses this year was less than half the number of the previous year. That probably tells you something. And in fact, I wish they would report 
the number of total surveys sent and total returned. That would be a great calibrator. If you're the Census Department, for example, this is the kind of stuff you do all day every day. You worry about this all day every day because the Census Department, of course, there is no margin for them failing to count somebody. Some congressman somewhere will beat the daylights out of them for it. They try to catch everybody and so to a degree this non-response thing becomes in effect a principal focus if you're the Census Department. It should for us as well, in all honesty. Let's look at fishing. That's a bit more fun these days. This is the Anti-Fishing Working Group. I don't know, is anyone here from? Sometimes there is. Um, this is the Anti-Fishing Working Group. This is uh, um, new uh, reports of fishing. And um, I've been tracking it for a while. If you go to their website, you don't get this period of time. I've taken the habit of people who put websites up that have data, um, I am compiling it over time. Uh, call that what you will. It, I don't know if it's hostile or I'm violating the DMCA or who knows what, but uh, I'm collecting data that people put up, not for the APWG, but some others might object, but I'm collecting it. This is an example. This is the number of uh, sites and the number of reports. The new only. This is not ones where we have seen this one over and over. This is new ones. And what you see there is a, a couple of interesting things. The rate of growth of the number of sites Clearly, they are, they are shortening the time in which they use sites that are involved in fishing. Again, where you know, you're supposed to click here, you think you're going there, and you're going somewhere else. It's the somewhere else. How long do the somewhere else last? On average, it's four days. The average lifetime is four days. Now, if you've ever worked in an ISP uh, and you've ever worked with a, uh, a general counsel, a large firm, even if you discover that this is where it is, it will take you probably four days to get around to getting a cease and desist delivered to some ISP and have someone in their text get around to turning off the domain name rec uh, resolution or whatever it is. So the four days is probably a minimum. I doubt it gets much shorter because that is probably the functional minimum of getting something taken off the air. And I would, I would take from this that our opponents on the fishing side probably at this point are, are sufficiently efficient at getting new sites that they're not worried about this problem. You can report them all you like. They'll just move on to a new one. It's probably not an issue for them. Well, you'd have to ask the APWG, because I'm just reporting their numbers. This is new reports of fishing sites and the actual number of sites involved in those reports. And I, by the way, I will happily share all of the stuff I've got. This, this gentleman's a numbers guy, and I, um, I'll happily share all of this. I'm just, I'm just calling this in the open source intelligence sense. <coughs> which, and yours will show up here shortly. This is the malware that's... A, uh, this is the malware that's attached to phishing mail. These days there's malware attached to phishing mail. This is the number of new variants of data theft malware. New variants, in other words, new, new things that if you're doing a recognition problem you're trying to recognize, this is what they report over this uh, interval of time. And uh, as you can see, it's not spectacular, what's two or three hundred, but it is still non-zero and it is also rising. So these are, that's worth noticing. And if you want to do it cumulatively, you get average of 200 a month and this is the curve. Cumulative curves sometimes allow you to see trends better than uh, incident curves, and these, this is the cumulative curve for the, exactly that, how much new variance of data theft malware is there over time, and it's remarkably uh, linear, actually. I didn't do that. It's just, that's the way it is. All right, yes, I'm a statistician. That means I could have monkeyed any of these numbers. Uh, all you have is my word, but no, I didn't. Just, you know, believe me or not, there you are. Um, but this is an average of 200 a month. Now, uh, this is new URLs. Again, APWG numbers, new URLs that nobody's seen before. And that's the cumulative one on that, an average of 1,600 a month. Now, again, this is not staggering, but it probably allows us to make decisions. Let me go back to a point that has no particular place I have to make it, but say something here. A nominal scale is like fish and bicycle. An ordinal scale is like X is better than Y. And that's, we're currently at that stage. There's also uh, ratio and, and interval scales. Interval scales is the, the, sp the distance between 2 and 3 is the same as distance between 3 and 4. And a ratio scale is 2 is to 4 is 4 is to 8, okay, just for what it's worth. I think at the moment we can largely measure security stuff ordinal at best, but that's okay for decision making, and ordinal stuff falls out of things like I'm trying to show here. That makes sense? It would be swell if we had interval scales. It would be even sweller if we had uh, ratio scales. We're not there yet. We can count some things that way, but sometimes our problems of counting are so great that I'd still rather treat it like an ordinal scale, all right? This is, a, this is a, a, you know, what, what is ordinal about this? Well, it's sort of remarkably linear. Now, what did, and I'm going to say this again later, what did the Red Queen say? Around here you have to run faster and faster to stay in the same place. 
I would guess that one of the messages here is whatever we're doing, we're not running fast enough, despite the fact that the rate of investment in security is rising everywhere. The fact that these curves are rising, we're probably not running fast enough to stay in the same place, which is an issue. Let me keep going here. This is, I rescaled these to the, where you can put them on top of each other just for what it's worth. Uh, new variants and new URLs. You, you divide by their own median so you can put the curves on top of each other so the shapes now matter, but there's no scale on the left because the scale doesn't mean anything, okay? You know, this is a large jump over this period of time. This is, again, this is about 18 months. Um, I could have probably added one month to the end here if I'd gone out today and looked at it carefully because this is about when they release it, but you get the idea. These are what is this trend telling us? And it's telling us that there must be money to be made here and the money to be made must be not yet fully harvested or you wouldn't be adding capacity. This is a, an example of the opposition is adding processing capacity if you want to think of it that way. And this is the same, you know, just another way of looking at the same thing um, cumulatively. I think it's un, without doubt that fishing is now professional. What a surprise. I mean, I don't, you don't need to be smart to do that. It's like, which way is the wind blowing? Um, and it is after data. Whether or not, as I, I'm just going to read this, whether or not the insider owner is a thug or not is irrelevant. The reason for this is, what is the first measure of success of an external attacker? And the answer is, they, for all intents and purposes, become an insider. So for those of you who worry about whether I should focus on insiders versus outsiders, I'd honestly argue insiders because amongst other things, if you do a good job of that, you largely blunt the effect of outsider attacks as a side effect because the first measure of success of the outsider is they want to be an insider. And so I don't think it matters. Does that make sense? Uh, now, the fact that these guys abandon them so quickly um, is a problem. For those of you who want to block things, for example, you want to block you, uh, known bad URLs, the problem is that your work factor is, this, is that cumulative curve, straight line uphill. The work factor for the opposition is, what does it cost them to get a new domain site? Small by comparison. And so this is the kind of asymmetric warfare, to use a term of art in the military these days, this is the kind of asymmetric warfare that's hard to win. So amongst other things, that would tell us that whatever we're doing now, not only are we not running in a, uh, fast enough in the same place, we may want to do something else. We may well want to do something else because you can't win a game where your work factor is the integral of the work factor of the other person and theirs is a point function. Uh, that's eventually you lose. Eventually you lose. Malware, a lovely topic, and there's lots of it. Oh, this is semantic numbers. This is from quite a while ago. I just liked these at the time. Because, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not, you've changed the way you classify things, so this wouldn't be a relevant graph for you to publish now. Um, but this is uh, the number of new ones of these. I'm, again, I'm trying to illustrate that if you're trying to solve these problems by recognition, you're, you're biting off a hard problem. If it really is 6,000 plus in a six-month interval, you're talking about a new version every hour. Uh, this is a hard problem to keep up with, even if, the if, even if the initial identification is easy. It's hard to get those notices out fast enough. So I'm just using this as an example. This is the number of new variants of these in these intervals, and I'm relying, again, on public source information. I don't do this collection. It tells me something. It tells me that in future, I should expect that it is hard for me to keep up with the opponent's ability to mutate. And I'll, I have a couple more curves about that. This is the same one, only cumulative, so it's not interesting. This is almost impossible to do right. Uh, this kind of thing is impossible to do right. The, the, if the opposition has adopted automation, and I don't think there's any doubt that they have, if the op opposition has adopted automation, then to a degree, we're going to have to have either better optimation, op automation or we're going to have to have a greater level of effort. Those are our choices. Unless we can, of course, think some way to outthink them, which is difficult because they do this all day, every day, and they're making money off of this, and we're only not losing money, which is a pale comparison to making money. Denial of service. Again, I want to use some older semantic numbers. Um, this is a two-year interval. I liked the graph, so I took it. And it, it showed uh, a pretty steep jump here in denial of service attacks. And current numbers, by the way, are higher than would fit on this graph if I was doing that. They're higher than would fit here. Now, you may have thought, you know, DOS attacks are, are passe. Who bothers? And the answer is, well, it's still happening. Maybe it's because it's no longer interesting, but it's still happening, and there's lots of them. Uh, to a degree, 
One could argue that the number of DOS attacks is at least a lower bound measure on how big the bot networks are, because that's the way you would do them. So we could come back to that perhaps in a minute, but this is an interesting picture. Now, this picture was also interesting. This is a botnet inventory, same scale. Now, I can cycle back and forth between here, but botnet inventory taking a big jump in that time period, followed by a big jump in DOS. I would think that you almost can say that there is a relationship here without knowing what it is, just for the record. I just happen to think that, um, but it's interesting. And this is the variance of the numbers in botnets. Now, uh, if Symantec wants, uh, the, the gentleman from Symantec wants to argue, if I read, uh, I believe it was ISTR number nine correctly, um, it was suggesting that there might be hope in the stabilization out here, or let me back up one, there might be hope in this stabilization out here that perhaps we were doing something that was causing there to be an upper bound here, that this might be a good thing. And I'm not going to argue that because it would be wonderful if it were true. There's a different way to look at it, though, just to tell you that when you look at these things as you're trying to interpret the future, it's hard. It's hard. And I believe that whether it's uh, Symantec or any other firm, again, interpretation is where the work is. It's where the work is. But I could interpret this just as easily as the predators have all the prey they can eat. They don't need any more than this, or, they don't, or we don't see them anymore. They're not showing their hand as well. If I read current semantic numbers correctly, it's about 1% of the bots that show themselves on any given day. That's, and that's of the ones we know about. And, of course, all of these have a little disclaimer of those we know about, comma. That's almost every sentence I speak will be of that category. So it could be that this is a sign of success. Okay, look, look I, I, am supposed to re, I am supposed to repeat for the tape what you say. And so if I got it right, your say, statement is, the bot writers ought to cooperate with us more if they, if, or, we, or we can't do better than this. And some, you know, we need more cooperation from the bot writers. We need better data from them. We need better data from them, yes. Well, av after having reviewed all the functions that are available in, say, for example, FatBot, it's clear they could give you the data. <laughs> it's clear they've got it. So I'll, I'll keep going here. Um, DOS attacks continue to climb today. I didn't put up the current graph here, but they continue to climb. And uh, this is, you know, I happen to think it's all the prey, it's the prey being left on the field, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, there are a variety of people out there who are making estimates about what fraction of all, for example, home computers are owned in some way or other. Um, I've seen uh, estimates all over the map. Um, I have guessed 15%. Uh, by the way, I, I'm sure you know this. If you want to ask a question on the Internet, you want other people to give you advice, you ask a question naively, no one answers. You make a false claim, everybody comes out of the woodwork to tell you why you're wrong. Therefore, the art of asking a question is to make a false claim such that the, res the corrections you get answer the question that you wanted to ask in the first place. <laughs> now, that being said, I inadvertently did exactly that by having an extra zero in something I wrote once, and everybody came out of the woodwork to tell me why I was wrong, but it was wonderful. It was actually wonderful. I highly recommend it if you can stand the... Uh, incoming uh, rocks and bottles. It's actually, it's actually wonderful. And I made that error, but I'm thinking that roughly 15%. Now, I, I, who did I, I'm trying to think who the hell I saw the other day. It was somebody important. Um, it wasn't Poneman, but it was somebody like that, saying that he, his estimate was 40%. Well, we're in the same order of magnitude now. In other words, a large measurable fraction. And that's an important thing to think about because there's certainly places where it's hard to get rid of them once you got them. Let's look at vulnerabilities. Again, I'll take Symantec's numbers brought up to date. This is a curve going up. Now, th again, what I'm looking at here is not so much this is the shape of it. What I'm thinking is think of the amount of effort that every software supplier is putting into not having vulnerabilities in their code. And it has risen. It continues to rise. There's lots of startup companies that will help you with this problem. There's, it's not like there is an effort being put in here, and yet here's the curve. Now, that tells me that either there's a delay factor between putting in that effort and the effect. In other words, this, you know, like day length peaks and then later temperature peaks. You know, unless it's like the seasons in some way, that whatever we're doing here isn't the answer yet. Because the level of effort to prevent this has risen spectacularly, and yet this continues to climb. And... Um, that's the most they've ever seen. We have a local maximum. This is the, uh, the curve of cumulative, 26x. If we, start, if we said there hadn't been any prior to the first half of 2001, and we just counted them from there, we were up 26x. 
Um, this is a different set of numbers. The, the NIST person still here? Hi. This is, a, I believe, your numbers. Um, I, I, I stole them fair and square. Uh, what was that Hayakawa's remark about the Panama Canal, right? Uh, we stole it fair and square. Uh, this is, I stole them fair and square. Um, I don't actually like how you put them up, but that's beside the point. They're your numbers. Here they are. And this was remote volumes up through 2005. My understanding is that you've stopped publishing this for that as, as it is here, you're publishing a different set of numbers. This always frustrates the Dickens out of me, which is not a comment to you. It's just that kind of thing frustrates the Dickens out of me. But this draws an interesting picture. Not a bad picture. You know, this is not a bad picture. I just, you know, regraphed the page you saw on the other one. Time now runs left to right. There's now a, a visual cue as to whether it's big or small. I didn't really like the table format, but you can get to this with no trouble. So this says, overall, there's some progress. Now, I thought, well, that's interesting. How about I look at the compound annual growth rate, or in this case, the depression rate, of these various ones, and it varies sort of all over the map, from uh, plus 81% to uh, minus 73%. So some areas we were getting better, and some areas we were not getting better over this four-year interval that was reported in that table. Now you're beginning to look at something, because it would say, amongst other things, well, you know, maybe that tells me where I should put some effort. Or maybe it tells me where the effort I'm putting is actually useful. So maybe there's some characteristic of the effort I'm actually putting that I could then use in other s sectors. So this is a way of looking at that. Overall, it's a 36% drop compound annual growth rate. Now, I thought it was slightly more interesting to say, well, let's look at some market share. If you take this as a market problem, that every year there's 100% of the volumes, of the remote volumes, what, where were they? And if I, if I do that, then what I get is this picture. So it's a constant 100% across the top. And that tells me something. That tells me that you know, non-server applications, you know, little things that people write to put on their, on their DMZ or what have you, or applications that are in some way or other not server grade, they have a, you, they, uh, have a definition of server versus non-server. That tells me something's going on here. That tells me something's going on here. Now this is partly, if we cured heart disease tomorrow, cancer would be a much bigger deal. Because of course, you have to die of something. But on the other hand, this tells me that there might be some place there where I should be focusing different than I'm focusing today. And this is a market share look at the same number. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't know how they collected the numbers, and I'm not even sure they're right, but let's suppose for the moment at least they make the same error every time so I can look at the ratios. Might be interesting. Might be interesting. And in fact, if I do a simple regression on that, it says by the end of this year, all of the action, uh, you know, just continuing this curve out here, all the action ought to be in this green sector. That's why... You know, I made this prediction about four months ago, five months ago, and I was hoping that uh, I would then get called in public on, you got it right, you got it wrong, because there would be numbers. Unfortunately, apparently there's not going to be numbers, but um, maybe, I can, maybe I can find them by methods other than the pure open source read the web page approach that I've been using. So anyway, this is interesting. It says that in 2006, it should be people worrying about the non-server apps that they have uh, as being the place where remote vulnerabilities are common. And that's not a surprise, by the way. That's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I don't know if I want to bother with these. I'll just jump over them. This is, uh, for a while, uh, Semantic was reporting on other people buying vulnerabilities. Um, I saw a question the other day uh, from, uh, I was asked a question the other day from Ryan Narain of, uh, I guess he's what, at eWeek now? Um, and he said, uh, make a prediction. This is one of those things where, you know, make a prediction and be shown wrong. Uh, but make a prediction on when Microsoft will have to start buying vulnerabilities, when they're going to have to decide that that's what all that cash is for, is to corner the market in their own phones. And that's an interesting question. If you want to answer that one too, you can, I'm sure he would take further uh, commentary at this point, but it's an interesting question. You know, they've got $50 billion, it's underperforming, maybe that's the best thing they could do. This is a little bit about bought vulnerabilities. That was the number, this is the severity. Uh, this, if you multiply number times severity, and then you take a cumulative. Again, not important. This turns out not to be as interesting as it might be, but I'm just trying to show what can you get. What can you get? But if this was true, then, the, then the, for the interval shown here, the business of trying to buy vulns outside, like iDefense does, for example, uh, might, be, might be yielding something. But we would never know whether we are buying those that were thought to be second rate, whether you know, we're shopping at the company store and buying the seconds which is what I think actually what it would be like. If you, I grew up in the South. My dad worked for textile mills. I was clothed in seconds my whole life. If you know what that means, that's great. If you don't, forget it. But that's, it could well be that if we were going to buy Vons, that's what we'd be buying, is we'd buy all the seconds. Uh, this is, again, astonishing increases of effort. Um, as Symantec says, the decrease may be a mirage if Vons are being held privately. That's the most important thing, is if it turns out that vulnerabilities are held privately, 
this is going to change what we think we can measure. Here's a prediction. Vista, whatever you think of it, has made it hard enough that amateurs working at home for funsies are not likely to find vulnerabilities. Consequently, of all vulnerabilities that have been found in Vista, the percentage that are held privately by people who are doing it for trade is going to rise relative to the percentage of those that are held by people who are doing it for fun. What is the impact of that? I'm not certain. But it does say that in a market share sense, I don't have a slide for this, in a market share sense, as we progress, the percentage of them that are held by people who view them as some, a capitalized potential profit source is going to rise relative to those who are doing it for funsies or, or bragging rights. Spam, our favorite topic, and for those who don't know, this is the date in question. That's when you should hold your events, by the way. It is the 13th of April every year. Anyway, uh, this was a uh, husband and wife team of lawyers, and they advertised on, on Usenet about, with their help, you could beat the green card lottery. Now, of course, lotteries are to begin with a tax on people who can't do math, but uh, the idea that you could beat it after spending money with a team of lawyers is just, you know, that is really out there. But it worked, so to speak, and that we've been living with it ever since. Uh, the latest thing, of course, is blog spam, uh, which is people who have RSS feeds that are trying to, uh, to fool the, um, the search engines. I wouldn't want to be worrying at a search engine place these days about how to avoid being fooled. It must be very difficult. This is uh, one entity. I, I'm sorry he stopped publishing this, so I used his last picture. I've been yelling at him for stopping, but nevertheless, this is one picture. Um, and again, I don't care sort of what he's collecting. I'm looking at the picture. This is uh, Common Touch's similar picture. 30-day moving average. This is Postini's similar picture. So this is interesting in that I have three sources of what in theory is the same data and the curves sort of look alike. So that probably tells me something. It probably tells me something. Now, each of them, by the way, said something along the lines of there's more spam out there. You know what I think? I honestly don't think there's more. I think what there is is the opposition has, with the template spam, figured out a way to make them vary enough that they've beaten, beaten, as in permanently beaten, the Bayesian filters. I think they've beaten the Bayesian filters, or DCC, the Distributed Checksum Clearinghouse, by doing enough variation that the only way you can get, say, for example, DCC to work is to turn the knob down far enough that you're getting now false positives and you're blocking real email. And when, you, when that happens, you have to give up. And so I don't think, actually, by the way, that this is more spam being sent, because amongst other things, there's no place to go and look and see how much spam is sent, because when everybody's filtering, there's not a source. You can't go to the mouth of the river and measure it. There isn't one, right? If everybody's filtering, you don't know how much there is. But if more of it is appearing in these sites, that probably means more of it's getting through. And I honestly think that it is likely, my guess is, it's likely that the filter failure is happening because the Bayesian techniques are being overwhelmed by variation. That's my personal guess, but that's predicting the future. These are numbers here from, uh, from Postini. Um, remember, someone who does direct rail marketing, meaning they mail you junk mail, they view it as a spectacular success if they get a 1% return rate. These folks are getting um, uh, something like a quarter of a percent success rate of virus infections at zero cost. And they can send as many as they like. This is, this is why, as a business, we're not going to deal with it directly, because they're winning, hands down. Pardon me? I think we're finding a lot of the growth comes from, from image spams. Image spams, sure. Sure, sure. You know, all of my... Spam at work is image spam. Um, and, and the titles are getting cleverer. They obviously have harvested some Usenet groups that I've, spoke, I've spoken on, so they come in with titles like uh, 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 latest spam statistics. And then it's a piece of freaking spam trying to sell me Chalice or something. Right? <laughs> you know, it's just fabulous. It's just fabulous. It is a game. Right. Okay. Yeah, so we're trying to predict the future here short term. Uh, this is your view. Uh, this, is the, this is the semantic numbers. Um, I happen to think that um, these are probably better collected than most other people's because they have a much bigger sensor network than anybody else, as far as I know. It's the biggest sensor network uh, for this kind of thing out there. Um, every statistic has some underestimation bias as the filtering mechanisms proliferate. Uh, there's both inbound and outbound. I assume uh, most people would agree that it's, one, a nuisance, and two, essential that think people like Comcast or, or Cox Digital or people like that now won't let you connect to a, won't let you Telnet outbound to an SMTP port directly. Uh, I assume those of you who run machines at home probably are answering email on port number 
you pick a number of 1593 or something, um, as opposed to on 25, uh, just for the reason that the, and they're absolutely right about this, which is that if, if, if they ever get in trouble for emitting large quantities of spam, the best way for them to protect themselves is just to block 25 outbound, and most of them are doing it now. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't necessarily mind some sort of rules about egress filtering being the commonplace in the future. I really wouldn't work. Uh, this is the Na National Vulnerability Database. They publish a number every day about what is the work factor for people like you and me. I've been collecting it. They only publish one number a day. They don't collect it. I don't know why, but here it is. Um, these uh, dotted lines are days on which Microsoft releases their patches. As you can see, there's always a jump. The, ma the minimum day here was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The maximum day uh, was the day uh, before Christmas. My guess is what that represented was uh, something along the lines of an all-out attack on the Internet uh, Christmas shopper, but what do I know? Um, but anyway, those are, the, um, those are the numbers. The blue one is the actual day-to-day -day numbers. The red one is obviously the trailing one. And then there's a, a fitted line. This is, I think, a lot of fun. I went back and looked at it by day of the week. It's a freaking sign curve. Um, I don't know why that is true, but it's true. And that tells me that it's likely that there are people out here who are doing this, you know, that the vulnerability stuff that, that NVD is picking up is probably people who are working a job. And there's other, I didn't show you some of the APWG's work, which shows that the number of phishing mails, and you guys have shown this too, the number of phishing mails goes way down on weekends. It implies that the opposition has a work week. If that isn't a, a sign that it's a job, I don't know what. If they've got a freaking work week, how can it not be a job? So, um, spyware. Um, you're probably getting tired of these numbers, but I like numbers and you'll have to put up with me. This is, uh, this is uh, sp spyware from Webroot. You'll notice that there's a gap between Q2 of 06 and now. Uh, Gerhard Eschelbeck moved over there from Qualys. He called a halt to the way they were doing things. They're going to do it entirely different. That's wonderful and terrible at the same time, um, but these are their numbers. The reason I put them up here is this is interesting. Uh, percent carrying spyware. Now, mind you, they'd have a broad definition, but that's okay. Percent carrying spyware. A number of programs amongst those who have any. Now, the point of this is, if whatever it is you do causes you to pick this stuff up, you've probably picked up more than one. I used to work in the medical world. People had uh, the kind of embarrassing transmissible diseases tended to have more than one. It's the same phenomenon, right? Um, if, you, if, whatever, if wherever you go causes you to get these... I'm not answering that. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, percent carrying Trojans, uh, it's rising. Uh, this is the, uh, if you have more than one Trojan, you're likely to have, if you have one Trojan, you're likely to have more than one, not a surprise. Uh, if you're likely to have a keylogger, a percentage of people who have one keylogger have more than one. I work for a, f a data security firm, that's not what this is a talk about. Uh, we went into a place in uh, D.C., it's a, uh, it's a federal um, uh, integrator. Um, the place was, everybody had a TS. Uh, we found a keylogger uh, key uh, on the section head's desk, which only goes to prove that being careful isn't sufficient. Um, and they were on Nippernet. Um, this is Mike Denseglio at, at, at Microsoft. I think it's important. When you're dealing with rootkits and some advanced spyware programs, the only solution is to rebuild from scratch. Now, th remember, in the real world that we all are trying to think about, a great number of machines are unmanaged. I got a forensics job the other day. It was sort of sad. It was a young man who had taken his own life, and the family wanted to know what I could find on the computers. Um, his web browsers, he had two of them, and he ran at various intervals. One of them had 600, and one of them had over 1,000 cookies. Now, I think that's probably normal. Now, of course, I don't work that way. You probably don't work that way. You probably don't let anybody in your family work that way, but I hadn't thought about that before. 600, 1,000 cookies, you know, I give up. What are you supposed to do? And that's the same thing he's saying here. You know, one, you know if it's unmanaged, it isn't long before you accumulate things that are hard to get rid of. It's just simpler to nuke it all and start over, and it may well be. Um, it, Microsoft also, that guy also said that two-thirds of all PCs have unwanted software. IDC says uh, three-quarters. Uh, a lot of people say two-thirds. That is an amazing number when you think about it. That is an amazing fraction. And I don't think they mean, I didn't want Office and it came with it. I don't think they mean that at all. I think what they mean is, I've got software I didn't expect and I didn't want, and if I knew where it was, I wouldn't run it. Um, but this is a real place where... You know, all of the stuff I'm talking about here, the discussion earlier today about we don't have the words to describe this because we can't agree on them, boy, is this a place where that's true. This is really a place where that's true. Who's targeted? You wouldn't be surprised. Uh, this is counterpane's data, where the money is and where the attacks are. Same top three. What a surprise. What a surprise. Because the attacks are, this, this proves that we have made the transition to attacking for money. Um, where, 
Well, I just said that. We've made a transition to where it, and we don't go back. I don't think we go back to where it's for fun. We, we stay with where it's for money. Public health. If I was a public health guy, I'd, I'd start naming words like this. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I would say. A public health person worries about uh, the transmission of disease in the community at large. That's what got me into trouble with the micro monoculture thing, for what it's worth, is thinking about disease in the community at large. Or, for that matter, why you don't want every farmer in Indiana planting the same variety of soy. You know, you want some variation out there. This is, I'd say, often, all in all, that detection is doomed when you see a rate changes like this. Uh, this is out of my real world uh, lot, job. We do a certain amount of looking at the way in which people mishandle data inside the corporation. Inside the corporation. Uh, and this, is being, this kind of stuff is holding up. I just can put three of them up here. But at a domestic software house, at a trading bank, and a pro sports team, a single user accounts for what percentage of data handling violations. And, and by the way, we strike out the system administrators here just to get stability. Because one thing that system administrators do is violate file permissions on purpose reliably. I mean, that's part of what they do. 50% uh, of the events from a small percentage of the users. This shouldn't come as a surprise, but there you are. This is a picture of the bank. This is a, uh, um, a scale in which I am rank order across this way and log of the number of events they're causing per day, and this is a sigmoid curve for those of you who've done this kind of thing, that'll look familiar. There's not a surprise in here, in other words. There's not a surprise. There's a, there's a number of people who do nothing. There's a few number of people who are really your problems. There's a huge uh, log linear piece in the middle. This is showing up in, of all things, just looking at how do people handle, mishandle data inside large enterprises. This one uh, is perhaps more fun. I, after stumbling across the other stuff about uh, uh, sine curves and the uh, work factor, I thought, well, what do you look at if you see uh, uh, the same sort of thing in violation rates? This is a domestic chip fab of some enormous size. This is the rate. In other words, things get worse toward the end of the week. This is the don't buy a car made on Friday. Right. This is an Asian chip fab. You tell me what cultural difference is showing up here. I have no clue, but you tell me. This is the domestic software house. This is a trading bank in which the number of events is reverse to the severity. Few of them on weekends, but they're important. Many of them during the week, but they don't matter. If that doesn't prove calculation, I don't know what does. You know, calculating a sense of, I'm going to get them. You know, this, this is calculation. I don't know what to make of it. It's fascinating. But the fact is, I can predict things with this. This is fishing as a job. This is the number of unique fishes per day done over a week interval. It's a job. It's a job. There's just no doubt about it. That being said, this is the kind of thing that we have to work with. And so where does it lead? Where does it lead? I think predators are the reason that prey evolve. That's true in nature. Why would it not be true here? Virulence is a term of art in, in medicine. And what it says is how bad I cough and sneeze. If I cough and sneeze really bad, I'm likely to transmit my disease faster. The marker for how good is your immune system is how virulent the bacterium is, for example. If your immune system is going to kill it for sure in place, it's got to move on from me to Gene to Becky to whatever. It's got to move faster. And so what you would expect from evolution, if you want to treat this just as evolution, what you'd expect from evolution is it moves from a large number of, of things that can infect you to a smaller number, and the smaller number, because of selection pressure, are those which are more virulent. And we've seen that. The doubling time for viruses, every time there's been a big virus outbreak, the doubling time has been faster than the one before. This actually holds up. Infectious agents don't cross species boundaries. You want to avoid uh, general collapse? Have some species boundaries. Uh, by the way, I notice in rooms like this, there's now a lot. It, you go to security conferences, the species boundaries are more pronounced than they are anywhere else. What does that tell you? It's that the smart people know what's going on, and that's what they do. Uh, corruption of the immune system is the worst. Witty was an example of that. Corruption of the immune system is the worst for you and me. What a surprise. But we see this already, so we should expect more of it. Parasites uh, don't kill their host. Bots nets don't kill their host. Uh, Chris Weisopel believes, uh, well pond, you know, a guy I used to work for, uh, I work with, um, claims that botnets are better managed than your average home computer because they're an asset. You know, that might be testable. That might be testable, in which case it would be fascinating. When there's a paper there for somebody. Um, and then, of course, Stephen Jay Gould's famous remark that evolution is never smooth. It's punctuated equilibrium, and I would argue that the Internet was the biggest one in our career so far, in that it made it, everybody had to play. There was no doubt about it. 
It said that preys and predators were no longer location dependent. You know, you can't live in a good neighborhood. Every sociopath is your next door neighbor. Uh, that the force on opposing you is proportional to the bandwidth they've got or can steal. That because of the internet, the pressure for commoditization is so great that that's, I don't know whether it's the internet caused the monoculture, the monoculture caused the internet. But they're tightly connected together. There's no doubt about they're connected together. The sudden ability to work everywhere made the demand for commodity computing go through the roof. And that's how we got where we are. That's a punctuated equilibrium. We're probably going to have another one. Don't get me wrong. There's probably another one. Um, if you haven't seen it, Richard Clark, you know who I was talking about, the guy who was the cybersecurity czar, he's got a book out talking about exactly that. It, it's a work of fiction. You may or may not like it as a work of fiction, but this is what he's talking about, another equilibrium punctu uh, puncturer. That's what the, the focus of his book is. Data. Here's, my, here's a core thing. I think the data has value. And more to the point that I think it's a growing fraction of total corporate wealth. If it isn't, then the unit value of data is falling. We have had 35 years with Moore's Law of 1% a week in terms of what you can get for your money in computing. We've had better than that for disk. We've had better, than, better still than that for, for bandwidth. That says that data and data in quantity and data in motion in quantity is the wave of the future. And as such, those numbers, 1% a week, the Dow Jones over the last 40 years has risen by one-eighth of a percent a week. So unless the unit value of data is falling fast, the percentage of total corporate wealth that is data is rising. And that should change something. It has value. It really has value. And the total retained volume is going through the roof. Those are Gartner numbers. The optimal computer changes. I think these are the doubling rates, and even if they're not the doubling rates, they're close enough for the purpose of doing graphs, 18, 12, and 9. That gets you two orders of magnitude for CPU per decade, but three for storage and four for bandwidth. That says that the future is data rich and it's data in motion. Why is Verizon selling the Fios service, for example? They want to sell you movies at home. That's data at, in motion and lots of it, for example. The winners are people that have the most information in play and the, users are the, one, the losers are the ones that have too much and it is security technology that draws the line between those two. And so I think the future that we have to worry about here, the real future, the what I'm saying as a quant, looking at all those graphs and things is that I think the future is about data. No offense to those who worry about networks and infrastructure and everything else. I think the future is about data. And I think that, there, that the security of that is where the action is. And I don't care whether you want to talk about confidentiality, integrity, or, uh, or availability, or whatever. Da security is what distinguishes data that has value from that which is not, or as Whit Diffie would say, if it weren't for security, computing would be free by now. Anytime you have threat increase that is substantial rising threat increase, you have to shrink your defensible perimeter. This is true of animals on the plane in Africa. It's true for the military. It's true for data. We cannot protect, you know, the whole bit about having no corporate perimeter, absolutely true. The Jericho Forum is dead right about that. But at the same time, if, you do, if, you can, if their threat rises and you're going to deploy constant counterforce, what you can defend gets smaller. And so I think to a large degree that the per correct contracted perimeter comes down to data objects. We are going to have to have protection around individual data objects or, or protection arrayed at the level of individual data objects. That brings us an, to an interesting idea. Where do you put that? I think you put it where state changes happen. State change like evaporation, or in this case, data moves from at rest to in motion. The fabled write once, read never media is not of interest to me. What is of interest to me is when I launch an application, I open a file, whatever it is, where data goes from at rest to in motion. If I do not have my surveillance or my controls or whatever it is deployed there, I lose. Because just as was said earlier, you know, the difference between digital uh, value and physical value is I steal your car, you'll notice. I steal your data, you'll never notice unless you stumble across the misuse. And that being said, you cannot control what you can't see. Good old Don Rumsfeld, for all the press made fun of him, it is the unknown unknowns that matter. That is the smartest thing a cabinet secretary has said in my lifetime, and everybody who made fun of it proved they were enumerate, at least as far as I'm concerned. This is exactly where it is. And if you don't see it, you can't control it. If data escapes your view, it also escapes your grasp. And therefore, I think if we're going to measure things, we've got to do it at the point of use. And if we're going to control things, we have to do it at the point of use. I think losing propositions are content inspection. No offense to anybody who's working on that, but encryption beats you, much less pig Latin. Uh, anomaly detection. 
all you do is you sit down and you put an anomaly detector like an IDS and you turn the knob to how much work factor can I deal with in dealing and, and getting rid of false positives and you adjust the knob to where I've got two FTEs of people reading the false positive reports or whatever it is. That's all you can do. Signature finding. We can't keep up with it. We just can't keep up with it. In a sense, we've got to do it, but we can't keep up with it. I think what we really want going forward, looking at the future and looking at those data, is I think we want data protection that's inescapable, uh, that's invisible, and that's future-proof. Those are hard requirements. Those are hard requirements. And we want some optimization between anticipation and failure. This is what the National Center for Manufacturing Studies, who would have thought? This, they drew this graph. They said that at the information assurance level, as it rises, you do have to spend more money on prevention. In other words, to get a higher level of of a higher level of information assurance, you have to spend more and more money on, a, on prevention, which they call anticipation. Uh, if you spend less money, uh, if you have low information assurance, you're going to spend money instead on failure costs. And it's the sum of the two that actually matters, and what you're looking for is what a statistician would call a minimax solution, which is the sum of the two. This is sort of